0: Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's a real joy for me. As Scott said, I went to RTS Orlando with Hutch, and um, there's a lot of experience in seminary that is not very enjoyable, like sitting in a preaching lab with 10 people, preaching and then getting evaluated feedback from your peers. And Hutch and I were in a preaching lab together, and whenever I See, Hutch, I'm reminded of the grace of God that He took us from that forsaken place of that preaching lab
1: <laughs> and allows us
0: to actually get to minister His Word to real people. And so, it's a great memory for me of God's faithfulness. And what a neat, neat beautiful picture of the body of Christ. North Shore has a, a gentleman who's one of our elders on this trip by, in Azerbaijan that we can minister and serve together the nation's. And then also that I can be here and share God's Word with you this morning. So quite a gift for me. Um, Can I pray for us before we jump back into the Word? Father, You are so kind and gracious to us. Thank You for Your Word that, that You give to us that promises to never return empty or void. Would You protect these, Your people, from the sin of the speaker that stands in front of them? And the things that are not of you, would you let those things fall on deaf ears? But the things that are good and true and help us treasure and set our affections rightly on the beauty of your Son, would you let those things uh, go deep into our hearts and transform us by the power of your Spirit? And we ask this in your Son's name. Amen. We're at North Shore on a series on, in the book of Acts. And Hutch said that it would be fine to pick up, so I'll take his invitation and do that. If you want to look, we'll be referencing all of Acts 17, even though we just read a portion. In Acts 17, Paul is with Silas and Timothy, and they're reaching an interesting point in their missionary journey. And up to this point, for Paul, most of his region of preaching and proclaiming Jesus Christ... The king that has come has been in rural outer areas. And when he gets to Acts 17, he comes to Thessalonica, a port city. And he comes to Athens, the major hub of all cultural and philosophy and art and thought. And so as this letter would have come and been read, as Scott said, the listeners would have been waiting and hearing how would these big cultural epicenters respond to the news that Jesus was the Christ, that the King had come in the person of Jesus. And so in Thessalonica, Paul and Silas do what they do in many of these cities. The first thing they do is go into the synagogue and begin proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. And it says in the text that they were there for three Sabbaths, so about three weeks. And Paul begins to tell them that this Jesus is the Christ. And it says in the text that some Jews believed, but many Greeks. And then a mob, uh, some of the guys become jealous over the response to the gospel of Paul, what he's preaching. So they go and get a group of thugs to literally come and try to oppose the message. It says they can't find Paul and Silas, but they take this fellow, Jason, and they drag him in front of a court, and they force him to pay some sort of tax. Um, that this message would become silent. And so then it takes Paul and Silas and they said they escaped to Berea at night. They leave for Berea and they do what they do in all these cities. is the custom. Paul goes to the synagogue and begins pointing that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the one that their hopes have been waiting for. And Paul has an interesting statement about the Bereans. He said that they're more noble than the others. And when I read that, you, you think I awaited a response that the Bereans were more noble so that upon hearing that Jesus is the Christ, everyone was converted. Upon hearing that Jesus the Messiah, the one that waited was here, is that everyone came flocking, believing that this was the one true king. But that's not what the text says. Paul says that they were more noble because with all eagerness, daily, They sought the Scriptures to see if this were so. And so the word got back to Thessalonica that Paul and Silas continued to preach the word. And so it says that the mob, the lynch mob followed behind Paul. And so when this happened, Silas and Timothy, they send Paul ahead. And they say, you're going on a vacation. We're sending you to Athens. We want you to lay low for a while. So they send Paul ahead. When Paul gets to Athens, this is, as I said, the place of culture and thought and art, the home of Aristotle and Alexander the Great and Plato. When he gets there, he cannot help himself. He is so um, moved by what he sees in this rampant idolatry. It's said in Athens in this time that there was 10,000 people in Athens and 30,000 gods. For every one person there was three idols. And it says that Paul, his spirit was provoked. Literally in the original language is that his it's the same word for Paul had a seizure. He had a spiritual seizure upon seeing this rampant idolatry. And so he sends and says, Send Silas and Timothy to me as soon as possible. But he does what he can't help himself to do, and so he goes to the synagogue. And he begins to proclaim that Jesus is the Christ, that the King has come, the one that their hopes have been waiting for has now come. And the response to them is to Paul and to his message is not the nicest one. What it says to him is that who is this babbler or this seed picker? And literally, that picture is one that when they would put all the seed and prepare for harvest, there would be some seeds that didn't go deep in the ground. And when these seeds didn't get really planted well into the ground, the birds would come and pick up the trash, the crumbs. So what they're saying about Paul and his message about Jesus Christ as the King is that He offers the thought and philosophy of trash. The leftovers. He tries to stir us with the trash and leftovers. And so the group begins to say, what we're going to do is we're going to take you to our place, to our court. Now this isn't like other places in Acts where they're on trial and they're going to end up in jail like in Philippi. But this is a place to go and reason and to tell your thoughts and why they should believe in this message on Mars Hill. The group there, the Athenians, did not believe in a resurrection. So the place of justice, if there was going to be truth, it would be had together. And so Paul goes to Mars Hill. And when he gets to Mars Hill, he begins to reason with them. And he he starts out in a very humble posture of men of Athens, I see you are a spiritual people. I see that you worship what is the unknown God. And then he goes right after their idolatry. Right after what had provoked his spirit. And he begins with, you're not going to take this God, the one true God, and make a temple for him. You're not going to make a place for him because he's the creator of all the heavens and the earth. He cannot be confined in a temple. He cannot be confined to a place. And then he goes on to say that he is not dependent on you. He is not lost. He is not unknown. But we are the ones that are lost and unknown. And you're not going to take this one true God and make an image of him by gold or by silver. And then he says, even though we're having this little court here on Mars Hill, that we think that we're going to arrive at what is truth, you will not judge if Jesus is the one true king. There's coming a day when the one man who's created judge and ruler of all will judge every man. And Paul says, for every man everywhere to repent. He goes right after the heart of their idolatry. When we look at Acts 17 as a whole, there's a lot of sad irony to this story. Because if you're going to sum up Paul's message as he preaches over and over again in Acts, the people in Acts 17 absolutely nail what Paul's message is. In verse 13 and verse 3, when he's in Thessalonica and he says, I want you to hear that Jesus, this one, the Christ, he is the king, the Messiah has come. And you scroll down to verse 7 when they're standing in front of the court, and what is their accusation? They're claiming, they're claiming that there is another king other than Caesar. And then a little further down it says, we don't need these men in our town because they are turning the world upside down. Makes me wonder, did Silas give Paul a high five when they heard that? Because that's exactly what Luke said at the Sermon on the Mount was Jesus' message. When the King comes, when His kingdom comes, the world is going to be upside down. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are hungry. Woe to those who are rich. Woe to those who are full. Woe, woe to those who have things spoken well of them. And so the message of Jesus and His kingdom, and they're saying, they're saying, this one, they're saying, is the King. And his message is turning things upside down. And then a little further down it says, not only that, but we are certain that they're preaching a foreign God. A God that is unknown to us because they're preaching the resurrection. Do you see the sad irony? The ones that are denying, the ones that are frustrated with the message absolutely nailed the message. The king had come in the person of Jesus Christ. He had inaugurated his kingdom and he had conquered death and been raised from the dead. And yet, their empty idolatry kept them from embracing the one true king. The Thessalonians, it says that they were jealous over this message of Paul. They were jealous because they stood to lose their place in society, their place of influence. The sad irony, the message that would actually set people free, the message that actually had power, they wanted to deny because they had made their religion about themselves. And then you have the description of the Athenians, this very spiritual people it says in the text that what they enjoy doing is listening to ideas. Listening to ideas. But those ideas failed to stir their affections, to move their gaze, to worship the one true King in Jesus Christ. The Athenians had a stoic philosophy that said that all men, what they should do is seek pleasure. And in seeking pleasure, man is self-sufficient. They were not atheistic in their thinking. They actually had space that there could be a deity. But what they believed about God was that He was far off, that He was aloof, that He was mean. And so what they would, how they would interact with God would be that we will have to give Him some kind of sacrifice because God is a taker. We'll give him a sacrifice and then he might give us the gift of having children. Or he might give us a bountiful harvest. And so their picture of God was that he was aloof, that he was far off, that he wanted nothing to do with them. And if we gave him the taking God, if we gave him good things, we might be able to appease him just enough to wring out some kind of blessing from him. And Paul, in this address on Mars Hill, he says, you're missing. You're missing the one true God. This God is not a taker. This God is a giver. In verse 25, Paul says, this one is a giver. He gives you breath and life and everything. You can almost see Paul getting worked up. The breath that's in your lungs, that comes from the Creator of the heavens and the earth. He gives you your very life itself in everything. Look around you. This God is not a taker. He's a giver. And then He goes on further. This God, the Lord Jesus Christ, He is not far off, but He has come near. The God, the Creator of heavens and earth has come and taken on flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Every other religion says, how can you be right with the deity figure? You have to accomplish the ten rules. You have to climb climb the right ladder. You have to meditate yourself away from your problems. Only in Christianity, only in the Gospel of Jesus Christ do we have the God figure not saying, come to me. But He comes to His people. He takes on flesh and comes and dwells among us. And Paul says, this God, the one true God in Jesus Christ is not far off. He's not a taker. He's not a stealer of life. He's the giver of life. And He has come, the King has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And men of Athens, don't relate to this God as He's aloof. Don't relate to Him like you have to squeeze out some kind of gift from Him. But come to this King. Draw near. Seek this good Creator God that is in the person of Jesus Christ. And then He calls them to a response. If you get that this God is the giver of life, if you get that this God is gracious and kind, if you get that this God has moved towards you, sinner, if you get that, if you're aware of His grace and mercy and kindness to you, then repent. It's exactly what Paul says in Romans 2. It is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. But because they could not recognize, because they did not see God as good, they could not repent. They could not turn from their sin. They could not turn towards the very thing that would answer their longings. See, our ability to repent, our ability of how often our coming to God in repentance reveals a ton about who we think the King is. How we repent says a lot about who we think the King is. See, I wonder if many of us operate not in repentance, but in penance. See, this is what penance says. Penance says, when I have sinned, when I have created an offense, when I have broken the relationship, I will then turn and broker a deal and offer a gift back that will set right the broken relationship. That's penance. Offering a gift back to make a relationship right. This happens at my home. One of the things I like to do and I enjoy for fun is I like to run, and I like to trail run actually a lot right around here. This is how that conversation goes with my wife often. I'll say, honey, I would like to go for a run. She says, how long? I say, oh, about an hour. And so in my mind, that hour starts when I get to the trail and hit go on my watch. But for my wife, there's been 15 minutes in the car up to the trail, Then there's been the run. Then I get back and stretch a little. I stop and get a Gatorade and get home. And it's been two hours. And I immediately come in and I can see and feel the frustration. And she says, Tim, I thought that run was supposed to be an hour. So how do I respond? I make penance as fast and as quick as possible. If I need to buy flowers or candy or say, honey, you go for as long as you need to go, I'm going to watch our three kids. But what I try to do is broker a deal with her for my offense to her or for our miscommunication. Do we treat God like that? When we sin against Him, do we make a deal where we say, God, will You fix this and I'll never do this? Do we try to become our own lawyer and say, God, I've sinned against You. And then do we make the promise? Do we relate to Him and offer the gift that somehow is going to heal back and break, and fix the broken relationship? And what Paul says is that is silly. When we understand repentance and who the King is, we don't have to do that. It says in verse 31, what's our assurance What's our assurance that Jesus is the King? What's our assurance that we know this is true? What's our assurance to come and repent? The text tells us this is our assurance that Christ Jesus has been raised from the dead. See, His resurrection is not just His conquering death. His resurrection is that His sacrifice for my sin and your sin was received as paid. And so when I understand that my debt has been paid completely, that the Son has been vindicated, that His resurrection and His perfect life and His death as a sinner is mine, that I've been grafted into that great truth and hope in Jesus Christ and been vindicated with Him through His resurrection, that when I come to repent, I don't come to penance and offer a gift back, but I get to come freely as I am That the God of the universe, the creator of heavens and earth, has welcomed me to come to Him. Has given me access to His throne through the gift of His Son. And when He sees me, He sees me His perfect, obedient Son. I don't have to become my own lawyer. I don't have to broker a deal. But I get to come just as I am before this gracious King and repent. Because He has been kind to me. Do we see the gift, the treasure, the hope that we get to come clean before this holy God? As we've gone through the book of Acts this summer at North Shore, and we've gone through the various cities, as I was preparing and we were looking at Acts 17, I think that this city gives me more pause Than any other city in in the Book of Acts, and the reason is, is because I see great affinity between us and the Athenians. There are people that are very spiritual people. They have an idol on every corner. We live in the Bible Belt. You'll probably pass ten churches on your way home. Not sure where you live, but they're on every corner. We're a very spiritual people. There was an article in the Times Free Press a couple weeks ago that said the top 20 ways that you know you live in Chattanooga. Number two was the second question people ask you when they meet you is what church do you go to? That's not necessarily a bad thing. We're a very spiritual people. But the warning, I think, as we come to this text is these people, the Athenians, were a very spiritual people. But their hearts were far from the king. Even though they had all the right answers, even though they got the heart of the message of the Gospel, they missed setting their gaze and heart towards the one true king. How might we respond to this? In a practical kind of way. We see in the beginning of this chapter the Bereans that Paul mentioned as noble. I don't know your congregation. I don't know where many of you are at in your journey with spirituality. But I'll ask you if you do not believe in Jesus Christ, if you haven't found him necessarily trustworthy, don't take my word for it. Don't take Scott's word for it or Eric or Hutch. But go to the scriptures and seek them to find could this story really be true? Could Jesus who claims to be the King really be the one to set us free from our sin? And for those of you that do believe in Jesus Christ, who do trust that He is the good King, I ask you to respond the same way. That you might come to this text over and over and over again to be mesmerized by the story, by the love, by the grace and kindness of the good King. Have you opened this this week as an individual? Have you opened this as couples? Have you opened this as families? Have you come to look and see and gaze at the King? I ask you that question. I'm not in any way, shape, or form piling on a list of moralism or six to-dos you have to do today in leaving if you love Jesus Christ. Let me offer this illustration of what I'm trying to get at. Four years ago, I had the opportunity to go to St. Petersburg, Russia. When I was there, I got to visit the Hermitage Museum, which is a giant art museum that you could walk through for days. And I knew in that museum was a couple famous paintings, and one in particular that I really wanted to see, and that was Rembrandt's Prodigal. And I've seen that picture before. It's a picture of the story of the wayward son coming back to the embrace of the father, and Rembrandt had painted a painting trying to capture that moment from Luke's Gospel. And so I knew I wanted to get this picture, and we walked for a while, and I couldn't wait to get to Rembrandt's Prodigal. And finally, we came in front of it. When we got in front of Winbanks' Pro- Prodigal, the first thing is it was a huge canvas. Huge canvas. And, I, and we sat there. And we sat there. And the longer I sat there, the more of the story that came out and was mesmerized. That you could see that the son was missing a sandal. And I to wonder from the, from the story, was he trying to capture that he ran to the father? And the son had sores all over his head, showing the debauchery that he, and the licentious living that he had lived. And the, the son had holes all through his clothes. And the father had this look of compassion on his face as he looked at this wayward son. And, and then in the painting I noticed that all around the painting was pitch dark, except... One spot of light at the place of repentance in front of the embrace of the Father. That is a picture of what it looks like to come to this story. To come over and over and over, not to earn, not to make right, but to be mesmerized. To be transformed by the good and gracious King. To come and to see over and over again His face of compassion. To come and see over again the wounds of our idolatry and to turn from it. To come over again and find light and hope and forgiveness of this good and gracious King my hope for you all and for myself as well is what the prophet Jeremiah says is that Your words were found and I ate them. They came to me a joy and a delight. Can I pray for us this morning that that could become a reality? Oh gracious Father, thank You for the gift of Your Word. Thank You for the gift of Your Son. Jesus, would You help us? Would You protect us? Would You break our stone hearts? Would You make them soft? Would You make them repentive? Would You help us set our gaze and affection on Your Son? Would You make us a people that are mesmerized by this good and gracious King in the person of Jesus? Would You make this true of us this morning? In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand together and.